So based on yesterday's episode with the Moonbirds and everything that happened with Kevin Rose, I was so excited to get a voice note with questions and response to the episode, and I absolutely appreciate it. So today, I'm going to play that voice note with permission, of course, and respond to add a little bit of context and maybe fill in some gaps that I might have left out yesterday based on that episode. Hello, I'm Taj, digitally known as Tropic Vibes, the host of Nifty Business, where we highlight NFTs and explore Web 3.0 as we move from pure speculation to creating real world value. So this question comes from my friend, Emily. She hosts amazing spaces, in particular, 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Fridays. She has nerding out and she dives into very interesting topics, AI, blockchain technology, art, robotics, sci-fi, you name it, all sorts of things that are just amazing and fitting to the title of nerding out. We go down that rabbit hole, have an amazing time. After listening to the last episode, she sent me this voice note. I've always thought that founders that had PFP projects essentially always kind of benefited from the gray area surrounding NFTs because every day you had spaces that commented on it, that broke down the values, the ups and downs, the floor price. When you say, I want to make sure that my the members and the holders get value from the NFTs or from the collections or you're creating this expectation that if I purchase this NFT, I will get the chance to make money if it appreciates or lose money if the market is bad or it goes down or what have you. I could sell it. I could trade it. I can pretty much do whatever I want. And the line is pretty thin between a stock and this. So first and foremost, I must say she is 100% right. That is exactly what was happening. And in many times, that is what's happening currently today. However, the same exact thing could be said about Rolex watches. Unfortunately, when we first came into the space, we were excited about these NFTs. People were under the perception that the NFT, the actual token, the technology itself was the valuable part. And the analogy that I often use is the dot-com bubble. Everyone thought that once you had a dot-com, it was valuable and not understanding that you needed a successful business model that was able to generate revenue and most importantly, profits in order to sustain that business. During the quote-unquote bull market, we were under the impression that NFTs were inherently valuable. And I say we, because when I first came into the space and was seeing the hype, how things were going up in value and so forth, I was also deceived. I was misled in that same regard. But here's the funny thing. I initially came in just for collectibles. So I was never, ever really thinking about the monetary value of it. I just wanted to have fun collecting very inexpensive NFTs. However, once I started to experience the ETH community, and that's where that perception started to change, that value was over on ETH. You could have fun and collect over on WAX. However, the NFTs on ETH were then inherently valuable. Now, you could say this was my own ignorance at the time, but that was really the culture that was being shaped. And people were under the impression that you're here early. Therefore, in a year or two, it's going to be more valuable then than it is now because these are historical pieces. They're stamped onto the blockchain in the early days. And these are the ones that you want because 10 years from now, they're going to be worth something. However, 
The narratives quickly changed as people were quickly hopping in and out. They weren't sticking around for community. There's no value being created within these projects and so forth. And many of them went to zero just as Gary V took a lot of heat for rightfully predicting. But like I said, Various NFTs are not created equal. Some of them are purely art and they will have no value outside of that value. For example, the CryptoPunks. They're not making any games. They're not making any sort of communities or anything other than the fact that this is, quote unquote, the project that made the 10,000 generative pixelated profile picture art popular. And they have to deliver nothing. Now that Yuga owns it, it's completely different than Bored Apes when they have to deliver games and events and so forth. But someone who owns a CryptoPunk, although it is an NFT, is not looking for Yuga to do anything with it as opposed to someone who owns a Bored Ape. So what happened here with Kevin Rose and the Moonbirds, the original collection, the Proof Collective, which was 1,000 memberships, the people that bought into that knew very well that they had a three-year membership to Kevin Rose's club, if you will. Then they had Grail's art drops and all sorts of different things. But the main thing that was being purchased was one of the thousand memberships into this three-year club. However, when the Moonbirds dropped, it was advertised as our first collectible profile picture project. And when that launched, this wasn't even during the peak of everything. Things were starting to already decline. And anyone buying into a collectible, whether it is Legos, Beanie Babies, Pogs, comic books, Pokemon cards, you name it, I can go on and on and on. They know that the inherent value of that particular collectible is based on demand over time. So collectors usually go into something with the idea that they're going to hold it. It's no different than fine art. Someone who spends 10, 15, 20 million dollars on say Picasso or whatever they're going for these days, a Monet or something of that nature, they're not thinking that in 90 days they're going to be able to flip this for 10 or 20%. Now, it might be possible, but most likely they're not entering with that expectation. And outside of Web3, before this NFT boom, collectors bought things with that same expectation. Now, there's always that crazy story of someone going to a yard sale, realizing that a Lou Gehrig rookie card or a Babe Ruth rookie card is there for sale, and they know right away that they are hundreds of thousands of dollars in the positive and they can go sell this and make a killing. But that is very rare. If you speak to the collector community, they are not collecting it necessarily for a quick flip. People that are collecting vinyl records these days, they are a fan of the art. They are a fan of the music. They are a fan of the medium, and there's all sorts of things that they're actually enjoying about the process of collecting vinyls. Sure, it could be worth something down the line, but most of them are not buying them thinking of the value. Now, pivoting back to this, were people buying into the Moonbirds for the express belief that they thought that this would have more value over time? Absolutely. And that's because they saw what happened to the proof pass, how it shot up in value from their mint price to I think it went up to as much as 100x the original price. So when the Moonbirds launch, they're thinking, hey, this is at the very least a 10x opportunity because there are 10,000 Moonbirds as opposed to 1,000. If this charts the same way that this did, they will do pretty well for themselves. Now, the financial aspects of it, when the Moonbirds came out, they had all sorts of different things that they wanted to incentivize their holders to hold it and not just list and try to get that quick sale, if you will. They came up with this nesting system, which is basically staking. NFT staking is something that I rarely ever talk about because 
99% of the time, it just does not make any sense. The tokenomics of it, most projects just can't figure it out. And again, that's why I just don't mention it much. I'm more so focused on their business model, how they're making money, and not necessarily how these things are necessarily generating revenue within Web3, unless they are directly tied to some sort of real world asset, such as a software as a service. But with this particular one, they were nesting, trying to get people to hold on to them rather than selling them. And they're going to give the opportunities to get various passes. And of course, then you could sell different rights and it, it just gets really complicated. And it's something that I never really covered on the show. So yes, people that initially came into this, they were going into it thinking of financial rewards, but these people were not buying a part of the company. They were buying into this ecosystem and it's really just another membership into what's going on there. And as a result, being in that community, people will figure out ways to profit. So were they financial motivations and pitches from the team and the community? Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that whatsoever. But drawing the line between the shareholder and a NFT holder is just very clear because at the end of the day, the actual Moonbirds brand, the registered trademarks, legal structure, the company behind the collection, NFT holder does not own that. So that's what I'm saying by there is a huge difference between an NFT holder and a stockholder. It's just an easy analogy that we can kind of get across that, yes, you own one ten thousandth of this collection. And of course, the more you hold, the more power or say you have in the community, especially when it comes to voting and DAOs being set up and so forth. However, that is not the corporation. It's a gray area and it gets really convoluted. There are not many laws written about this stuff. And we see various projects reneging saying that someone has the rights, then they start to go CCO, allowing the whole world to then use that art. I mean, what does this stuff really mean? There's lots of going back and forth. But again, doesn't change the fact, generally speaking, NFT holders are not shareholders within the company. They might have entitlements to certain profits, certain revenue streams, airdrops in the future, you name it. So an example is the Board API Club. The main value that they were able to create for their holders were in secondary collections. They had the mutants, dogs, then they went to the other side deeds. And then, of course, when the ape coin was dropped. But generally speaking, the revenue from the project, wherever that's coming from, for the most part, is not attached to the tokens. That is not how those holders were able to profit. And I've actually come across some people that minted and still hold their original Basie. And the reason why they're so bullish about it, even though the floor price is so far down, is because they sold off many of those secondary assets. It's very different than, say, someone who owns something like Ford stock and every quarter they're getting a percentage of those profits. And it's even different than those tech companies that don't even have any kind of dividends. They are just reinvesting all the profits and growing. And then the value is coming from the appreciation of the stocks. It's not even like that because the vast majority of these NFT holders do not have a say. They don't vote on the board of directors to remove the CEO or anything of that nature. So, again, it's just very, very different. It seems as if they expected people to invest. They went on these rounds explaining their new projects, new collections, a little bit like the D gods and all of them and say why it's a good investment. I mean, they wouldn't say it specifically, but it's pretty much was the idea and all the marketing and the hype surrounding midday. And I think that they sort of like created this expectation and it's unfair to, on the one hand, ask for money or present things in a way to say invest in this project and, and talk about the floor and stuff. But then when people FUD, 
you sort of go with like, I don't know what people expect. They're delusional if they think that they're buying, like all of a sudden it's a product. You know, I I thought it was a, it's a cop out. Given Kevin's illness, like it's not, but I don't know. So I 100% understand where you're coming from with this. And yeah, many times it is a cop out because as I said, false expectations were definitely set, not only with our own perceptions and understandings of this technology, what was going on within the space. But yes, they had those spaces where influencers and founders were coming up and saying all sorts of different things and everything changed over the last 24 months or so. So something as simple as royalties going away completely changed the dynamic of the space and what a project could bring in, how things were going to be done. And a lot of projects that were built on the idea that holders would have a percentage of the royalties and that's where the staking rewards would come from and all of these different things all of that went away, drastically changing the landscape of things. And stepping out of this project again, I'm going to go all the way over to VFriends and Gary, right? Gary came from the marketing world, had the full understanding that this is how you build businesses and profits and build teams, all these different things, IP long-term. He came into this thing with the right expectations for himself. However, he has even said the one regret that he has about the whole NFT space and how he came into it and launched is that he set expectations of financial returns. And he's trying to build a brand. He's trying to build lasting legacy using these characters that he created to basically become the next Sesame Street or Muppet Babies or Dr. Seuss, putting his values and teaching the next generation through these characters. Now, that is something that takes a lot of time. The company made a lot of money off of royalties. He gave a lot of rewards back to his holders in the form of VCon tickets, books, sporting tickets, physical cards, all sorts of different things. However, there's going to be a sector of the community that still remembers the idea of royalties and profits and all those things. And they'll hold him to the fire and say, hey, he's a snake oil salesman and he got us into this thing and the floor price crashed. The space absolutely changed and we lost money on it. Therefore, he's a scammer. And it's unfortunate. Again, misunderstanding the space, and I'm not making excuses for any of these people, even I, myself. When I came into the space, I won't even say came into the space. When I came to ETH is when my perception changed. And it's because we truly did not understand what was going on there. And then, yeah, there are some people that had ill intent from day one, and they were definitely snake oil salesmen. But then there are some people who I think genuinely went into this thing and set false expectations out of their own misunderstandings and excitement. So as you may know from listening to this podcast, for the most part, I'm a collector. I don't really trade, but I have taken a few profits here and there. And I can tell you the one that I should have taken and I kick myself for this is one in particular that I 100% got into for a financial return. Now, a project by the name of Bulls and Apes Project. I had them. They were the first guests I ever had on this podcast. I didn't want to do any kind of interviews until I spoke to Anthony, the CEO of that project. And it was just an amazing thing. And hearing him, everything that they were building out, I was like, yes, this is something that I cannot miss on. Number one, they had a six-month money-back guarantee. And during that time, of course, the floor price was ridiculously high. No one on their right mind wanted their money back because they could have sold it on the open market for way more than a refund. I remember one day logging in and after minting this at 0.17, I believe was the initial mint. When I logged in, I saw a floor price of 1.5 ETH. Now, if I had sold my two bulls at that, it would have been three ETH. I would have had a massive profit. And if I wanted to, I would have been able to buy back in now, I don't know, 30 times over. However, 
The reason why I held them is because this project was a true membership club. I knew I couldn't afford to get into Proof Collective and many of these exclusive investment clubs. This particular project, the Genesis Bull, gave me access to private company investing, which I would not otherwise be able to get access to. Privately held companies such as SpaceX, OpenSea, and the list goes on. I think they're up to maybe 30 venture deals right now. And as a holder of this, I would access their Series 65 course, which would then give me the ability to invest in those private companies. I was like, oh, this is absolutely amazing. And when they had their live events, of course, I want two bulls because I want my wife to be able to attend. She would be my plus one. Now, that all sounds great, right? However, there is a huge problem. Number one, I don't have a funds to make a substantial enough investment into these private companies. That would give me such a massive return. And from a financial standpoint, I would actually been better off just selling them on the open market and getting my nearly 10x multiple within, I don't know, six months. That would have been absolutely amazing. Now, as someone who is getting into these privately held companies, you're trying to 1,000x and so forth, but many of them are going to die. Many of them are going to go belly up. So it's completely different. Here, I had the profits on the table. I could have taken it and then bought back into it. However, my perception of the space was absolutely tainted by looking at Bored Apes. I was like, this is a 1.5 ETH floor price and maybe I can't get into these VCs. Maybe I don't have the funds to get accredited and take advantage of these deal flows. However, if I hold this thing down the line, somebody will be able to then take advantage of it and so forth and I think it would be absolutely amazing because look at Bored Apes where they're at and they're not really offering their holders anything other than air drops. Sure, there's a lot going on here. There's a game, there's staking and everything. But the real value in this, in my opinion, was just being able to be in that room so that way you can access those private investments. And that's why I held it. So in hindsight, was it the right choice? Mm, absolutely not. However, <laughs> I should have sold that 1.5 ETH and bought back into it now because I respect what they're doing. The team's doing some great things. But Hindsight is 2020. So now I have this story. I had this insight of being able to say, hey, look, when something pumps that much in that short of period of time, you just never know what's going to happen. At the very least, take your profit, sell one of them and watch to see what happens. And I could tell all sorts of stories with multiple ones that I've had. I've saw them pump. However, as a collector, I didn't sell. And then guess what happens? They all came back down to earth. However, going back to the main topic at hand, these financial expectations. Yeah, sure. Some of these were set by founders. However, we all had a terrible misunderstanding within the space. And you can see we're the ones that were misleading people and what have you, or maybe they made some really outlandish promise and these definitely became securities. Well, those were the ones that were ran down by the SEC and various institutions saying that, yeah, some promises were made. Lots of influencers were fined and they look at these founders angrily. Now, 100% understandable. And going back to this with the Moonbirds and Kevin Rose, the biggest knock that I would give their team is they cancel the conference. And I know, I understand that the if, if the sponsors aren't there, it's very hard to put on a conference. But honestly, once that news was broken that they were canceling that conference, in my opinion, that was the real turning point of everything going sour and people getting really angry and uh, just market expectations and FUD. However, here's the interesting thing. Despite all of that, I'm going to use NFT Go, which is just a great place to pull a whole bunch of data. And I'll leave the link to this in the show notes. At the point of recording this, of the 10,000 Moonbirds, 
only 5.38% of them are actually listed for sale. And only 1% of them are within 15% of the floor price, which is currently 1.27 ETH right now. This is way below their all-time high and definitely below their mint price. How the vast majority of these people are holding them. And when you look at unique holders, it is 58% unique holders. So I can infer from that, for the most part, the majority of people are holding this thing and they're not selling it. And most people only have one. So they bought in. So they have their membership to this club, if you will, and they're there. They're not going anywhere, at least for now. However, when you compare the silent majority to the loud minority, if you will, the people that are fighting, the ones that are throwing things on the floor, the ones that are really dragging their names, basically the people that are causing him to want to jump ship, the ones that are really giving him the aneurysms and the stress and so forth, it's a relatively small group of holders that are very upset. Even one where Emily and I are both and the crypto tech women, the founder, Gigi, she'll tell you that she was threatened by whales that wanted her to take the project in a certain direction. And it's just crazy. It doesn't take a lot of people to make your life very stressful. And in this case with Kevin Rose, as we know, it just doesn't turn out well for him and his health and everything. And he's stepping away from X. Now, don't get me wrong. Like there's definitely huge mixed steps that were done here in the project. But as with any other business, any other private corporation, I can go to Disney, I can go to Netflix, I could go all over the place. There's mistakes that are made in business. However, the fact that he's stepping away from Twitter, I see nothing wrong in that. Like, sure, he can say, yeah, we made some mistakes and apologize and so forth. But the fact that he's no longer going to be the front man communications guy, I have no issue with that. I don't know anyone that's not upset with some product that they use. It could be as beloved as Apple. They have some criticisms that they want to throw at Tim Cook's way. However, guess what? He's not on Twitter responding to people and their complaints. So that's what I mean. Chase Bank, you could have your issues with them, but guess what? You're not going to go tweet to Jamie Dimon and uh, so forth. So that's what I'm saying is like, I have no issue with him stepping away. But anywho, this is going like way longer than I even uh, anticipated because there was, were short questions and I thought I was going to give a short answer. And now I'm all over the place. But what I will do is say this was a lot of fun to me. I, I really enjoyed this format. Uh, I get DMs and emails all the time, but get a voice note that I can actually just play right in here and just respond to it as if I'm having a conversation, create an episode out of it. I greatly appreciate that. So if there's any other questions, comments, concerns about this episode or any other episode or just anything you want to know, please feel free to send me a voice note at Tropic Vibes on X. But as usual, I just want to thank you for taking time to listen to this as we're learning and building Web3 together. So until next time, later. The Nifty Business Show is not investment advice. It provides insights and information within the space. As with anything, please do your own research before making a decision whether you're making an investment or a purchase.